You're in the theater watching your favorite Shakespeare play. The words are powerful and evocative. The actors are performing them beautifully, drawing you into the play. And in the back of your mind, there's something you wonder, a question you can't put aside. Actors take this language that's centuries old and they make it sound so real and immediate. How do they do it? Is there a secret? Well, it turns out there is. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Breathing life into Shakespeare's texts and directing actors so that they make that happen requires artistic skills not all of us can master, but that all of us can appreciate. A few years back, Barry Edelstein, the Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director at the Old Globe in San Diego, had an idea. To help audiences more fully connect with Shakespeare, he'd stage a rehearsal right there in front of them. Pull back the curtain on the process of creating a Shakespeare production so that theatergoers can see exactly how the sports car gets built. Twice a year, the Old Globe holds an event called Thinking Shakespeare Live, a masterclass where you get to watch actors act and one of the nation's most experienced Shakespeare directors direct. Barry agreed to go through a very abbreviated version of Thinking Shakespeare Live for us in the studio. When he does it in San Diego, Barry generally uses three actors. For us, he's working with Barbara Bogave. We call this podcast, Speak the Speech, I Pray You, as I pronounced it. Barry, I am so thrilled that you've agreed to come on our podcast and turn me into a Shakespearean actor with this one simple trick. Well, you know, I love this podcast, and I'm really honored to be here. And, uh, you know, Shakespeare is for everybody. So once you learn a little bit about the things that make him work, you can connect with him in all sorts of wonderful and deep ways. Well, seriously, I I do just want to acknowledge that you're being so gracious in walking us through a Shakespeare masterclass. And with me, I am hardly an experienced actor. In fact, one of the high points of my voiceover career was doing a commercial for a Piggly Wiggly supermarket. So so you have your work cut out for you. Well, that's sort of like Hurly Burly, right? Yes, Piggly Wiggly. So there you go. It's just a a degree of difference. (laughs) From Shakespeare. Exactly. Uh, But before we start with the coaching, why don't you tell us what inspired you to do these master classes in the first place? Well, I'm a Shakespeare director, and you can't be a Shakespeare director without great actors to be in the plays. And so early in my career, I got involved in American classical actor training. And Shakespearean actor training has been absolutely the partner with my own directing career over 30 years. And many years ago, people asked me, well, is there a book you can recommend? And there are some wonderful books about Shakespearean acting out there, but none that expressed my own way of conveying this information. So I sat down to write one. And in 2007, I wrote a book called Thinking Shakespeare, which lays out these techniques of how an American actor relates to the text, how the text works. And from there, I developed it into a kind of a 90-minute masterclass for the general public, because everybody finds Shakespeare a little intimidating. And the truth is that once you know the things that a trained actor knows about how the text is built, that intimidation evaporates. So uh, I've sort of bottled this thing into a lecture that I call Thinking Shakespeare Live, and it's 90 minutes and a lot of fun, and uh, people really respond to it. I'm thrilled to be able to 
talk to your listeners about it now. Right. And, be, and let's talk about this idea of thinking Shakespeare, because it, it all stems from the concept that Shakespeare's characters are thinking people. As you say in the masterclass, they have ideas, and then they choose the language that will communicate those thoughts. So tell us more about this. How, how is this a guiding insight into acting, into performing the plays? Well, it's just what you and I are doing now. Um, if you were to ask me to describe the weather today, I would think about the weather and I would find language that would express exactly what's going on here. Um, we think an idea and then we find language to communicate that idea. And as we search our mental hard drive to find the language that we want to use, we will sometimes use simple language, sometimes complex language, sometimes we will speak in long arcs of thought, sometimes we will speak very simply. And um, that's what characters in plays do. Playwrights have the skill of counterfeiting thought. And what an actor tries to do is identify the character's thoughts and then give the audience the illusion, and in fact, once you do the work, the reality of thinking the same thought that the character is thinking, and then using this language to express that thought. So in the case of Shakespeare, is it that the language is, in many cases, so complex, or, or the, um, the Shakespeare is such a towering icon that this, I, this very simple idea, what we do every day, we think and then we form language, it gets in the way so that actors can't access that? There are layers between Shakespeare's language and us. Um, the language is 400 years old, and the English language has changed enormously in the centuries since Shakespeare wrote it, and it has a kind of unfamiliarity to it that actually one can decode with a little bit of hard work until the language starts to feel much more accessible and much more immediate. And, and finally, yes, you're right. I think that there is generally this sense of Shakespeare as a gigantic icon, and for many, he's remote and even a little intimidating. And if you've had the misfortune of being exposed to Shakespeare as a child in a production that you found boring or, uh, you know, God forbid, with a teacher who sort of didn't have the knack for making it come to life, you know, you can find it something that's sort of not for you. And so you can kind of decode it once you know a little bit about the DNA and the, and the structures that put it together. Well, great. Let's get to decoding. And in the masterclass, you start by giving examples of, of this technique from Hamlet and Measure for Measure. Right. Let's start simply. Um, do you have them in front of you? Do you want to? I do. All right. So. I do. I have them right here. And they're lines. Th these lines both describe the dawn, the dawning of the day, yeah. but they do it very differently. So I'll give the lines and you can tell us what's illuminating about them. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's take a step backward and, and let's not think about what they say yet. Let's just listen to the words themselves. Okay. So the first one from Hamlet. But look, the morn and russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. Excellent. There you go. What do you mean you're not a what do you mean you're not a Shakespearean actor? <laughs> Fantastic. You're such a teacher. And then for measure for measure, it is almost clear dawn. Excellent. Okay, now what do those two things have in common, as different as they are? The morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. What does that mean? It means the sun is coming up. That's the thought. The thought is the sun is coming up. Why, that's Horatio in Hamlet in the first scene, why does Horatio use this extremely complicated figurative language to say the simple idea 
the sun is coming up. The second line, it is almost clear dawn, is the duke in measure for measure, it says the same thing. The sun is coming up. So Shakespeare's capable of writing clearly it is almost clear dawn, simply, straightforwardly, nothing Shakespearean or fancy about it. But then, for another character, he writes this very elevated, very metaphoric, very figurative thing. And when we work on Shakespeare in the rehearsal room, the simple and eternal question is, well, why? Why is Horatio speaking in this way? There are a couple of ways to answer the question. You could answer the way you would in a graduate seminar in English, the morn in russet mantle clad. So the sun is uh, rendered figuratively as a man in a red cloak, russet mantle, an orangey red cloak, walking over the dew on the grass of that hill in the east. It's an amazingly beautiful image. And you can talk about anthropomorphism in literature, and you can cite precedents from poetry, but that doesn't really help Horatio here. Horatio needs to know, well, why am I referring to that? He's a graduate student in philosophy at Wittenberg University. We know that, a well-read, highly intellectual, highly articulate guy. But what's really going on is he's just had the wits scared out of him. This line comes after Horatio, Marcellus, and Bernardo have seen the ghost of the dead king walking around the ramparts of the building. It's been terrifying, scary, it's cold out. They're all just beside themselves with fear and wonder at this thing that they've seen. Suddenly, in the distance, he sees a little glimmer of orange light and this sense of relief and pleasure and a sense that this long, horrible night is over. And he says, but look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. And you can hear in that the relief that uh, that sunrise brings. And that's, that's it. Why is he speaking this way? Well, he's speaking this way because he needs to comfort himself after a horribly frightening experience. And he goes to this elevated, beautiful, figurative, metaphoric language to do it. Now, that's very interesting because in that answer, you address this issue of why not just you know, pick up one of the hundreds of graduate theses about the role of imagery in Russet Dawns in, in Shakespeare and figure out the line uh, backwards from there. But you're saying that, that those kinds of academic insights don't really help an actor. They are interesting and fascinating and wonderful to talk about over a beer after rehearsal. But in the situation he's in, he's a guy talking to other people in this very, very specific situation. And once again, we're trying to create for the audience the illusion of reality. We're actually trying to create for the audience reality. These three guys on the ramparts of a castle in Elsinore having had this very frightening experience. And so we want to implant the thoughts that Shakespeare has written on the page into the skull of the actor playing Horatio so that in that moment, Horatio is thinking, the actor is thinking the very thought that Horatio is having, and then the audience sees something real in front of them. And the Duke, in Measure for Measure, he just comes right out and says, it's almost clear dawn. Well, for one thing, he doesn't have a whole lot of time, right? The, 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 as, as you know, the situation in Measure for Measure is that the Duke is trying to right an injustice. A, a guy is going to be put to death in the morning at dawn for a crime he did not commit. So the Duke comes up with this crazy scheme where they're going to take another prisoner also scheduled to be beheaded, and they're going to swap 
his head for the guy that they're trying to save. And they've got to get this done by dawn, and dawn is almost coming. So the Duke doesn't have any time to talk about men in russet mantles. The Duke just has to sound the alarm and go, oh my god, the sun is coming up. So he says simply, unmetaphorically and directly, it is almost clear dawn. Let's get going. Now, this is wonderful, and, and let's try to put this into practice uh, with, with another short, easy exercise, because I think what we're talking about here is heightened language and simple language, which is one of your categories of language that you use in the masterclass. And you give a short, easy exercise, uh, an example of that, which is the air bites shrewdly seen, also from Hamlet. And it's just two lines, so... I can handle that. Well, so part of the technique that we work on in the rehearsal room is to recognize the difference between language that's heightened and language that's simple. First, you have to recognize it and say, oh, that's fancy. That's not fancy because it's a Shakespeare play. It's fancy because that character needs to do something fancy right now. Right, and, and that brings us back to the air back bite to shrewdly. This. Sure, okay, so this is one scene later. So Horatio, having been scared by the sight of the ghost of King Hamlet uh, and, and relieved that the sun has come up, goes to the castle to find his friend, young Prince Hamlet, and he tells him, hey, I, I saw the ghost of your father last night. Hamlet is astonished and skeptical, but Horatio convinces him that it's true, and Hamlet says, okay, I'll, I'll come out with you tonight, and we'll see see if he'll come out again. And they're standing on the castle roof at night. It's chilly. And he says this one line of verse. Why don't you go ahead, Barbara, and say it? The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. That's one line of iambic pentameter. Two sentences. The air bites shrewdly, period. It is very cold, period. What does the air bites shrewdly mean? It means uh, a shrew is a little rodent that can get into all kinds of little holes and do damage, right? So what he's saying is the air is biting me like a shrew, meaning it's cold. So what Hamlet is saying is it's cold. It's cold. But the question is why? Why say it is cold, it is cold? And specifically, why say one version of it is cold, super fancy, and the other version of it is cold, uh, simply? I mean, look, it is very cold is the second line. It is very cold. What's Shakespearean about that? When you go into Costco, into the room where they keep the vegetables, right? You say, it is very, it is very cold. cold. Yeah. You know, my, my wife always says to me, will you quit quoting Shakespeare, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it is very cold. It's, there's nothing, right, to a, a Shakespearean line. So, so again, why? Why am I expressing these thoughts in these forms? So we go into rehearsal and we ask. Now, uh, I have a production of Hamlet running at the Old Globe right now. And the solution that we came up with is that Hamlet says the air bites shrewdly. He's this educated guy. He, too, went to Wittenberg. He's a prince. And the actor playing Marcellus, the soldier, who's just a grunt, right, not a very educated guy, looks at him with a look on his face of, what? And then Hamlet explains what he meant. And the audience laughs because we understand that the character has chosen to define this very complex metaphor suddenly in much more straightforward and accessible language. That's really wonderful. Could you give me the uh, coaching in that? Can we can we do this as an okay. exercise? Sure. All right. So I'll give you, let's suppose I'm directing you. I look at that and I recognize one half of that line is fancy and one half is straightforward. And I say, Barbara, here's a thought. What if the first half of that line is private? And the second half of that line is public. Why don't I try the one that, uh, that you've decided on in rehearsal, that, uh, that, that it's comedic? That, well, let, that... Let's try it. Okay. It depends on the guy playing Marcellus doing a take 
after you say the air by Trudley. So your listeners will have to imagine that the, in, the, in the beat between the two halves of the line that the other guy is looking at you with a, a look of perplexity on his face, and then you'll, then you'll get it. Go ahead. The air bites shrewdly. Huh? It is very cold. Oh, right. So that's right. He well, doesn't say huh, and see. he doesn't say oh. But there you go. That's that's the idea. Very good. See, that's that's it. You're 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 now a Shakespearean actor because we are <laughs> we are asking ourselves why am I talking this way? And it's never good enough to simply say well because it's a Shakespeare play and that's how Shakespeare writes. In the rehearsal room, we're trying to create human reality. So it is this marriage of why am I saying these words now and how is the language built? Because this is how. You you organize your masterclass and your teaching. And I think we, we just talked about heightened language. Uh, you also include in these four categories antithesis. Now, antithesis, remind us what sure. antithesis in rhetoric is. Antithesis is the big, 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 big thing of Shakespeare. That's the technique that he relies on really most. And antithesis is very simply opposition. You mean so, to be or not to be. Exactly. To be or not to be, that is the question. Or... Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Or, the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. And, you know, you can't go more than two or three lines in Shakespeare without finding that kind of opposition. Sometimes it's dictionary uh, opposites, right? Day, night, winter, summer. Sometimes it's a more abstract kind of opposition. So, for example, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Well, the opposite of not strained is strained. But Portia is using... Uh, not strained and droppeth in opposition to each other in the way she's trying to explain what mercy is to Shylock. And, and you know, we, we hear antithesis in American life all the time. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's antithesis. And if you don't say the words that are opposite each other, the thought makes no sense, right? Mm -hmm. if, if I got up and said, ask not what your country can do for you, Ask what you can do for your country. Doesn't make any sense. No, but the you sound words, like AM radio. Uh, well, oh, God forbid, <laughs> you know? Oh, I don't know. Or I William Shatner, maybe. Now now you bring me to one of the real bugaboos of, of thinking Shakespeare. You know, I, I grew up watching Star Trek, and I revere William Shatner. And Shatner <laughs> actually began his career as a Shakespearean actor at Stratford in Canada. People don't know that. But that kind of overstressing of words, right, the famous Captain Kirk line of, I will not kill today, that's bad Shakespeare. And you can get into something like to be or not to be, that is the question. And then you're in the Shatner trap. And the Shatner trap is something to be avoided, and you've got to watch out, because it's, again, not about hammering words. It's about thinking thoughts. Mm -hmm. So you sit down with your Shakespeare, and you circle the words that are opposite each other. And when you say the text, you think it in those oppositional, antithetical terms huge, big idea in Shakespeare. Now, this seems to lead to the next category of language which you uh, work with, which is verbs, because you're emphasizing the two sides of, of the thought. And you also say it's important as, a, as an actor to keep in your mind, in fact, to, to underline verbs, that verbs, they're in every play, they're in every complete sentence. So why talk about verbs in the masterclass? 
Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, Barbara. I, I like to joke that, you know, you, you circle the words that are antitheses, you hit the verbs with a yellow highlighter, you know, all you need is a trip to Staples and you're a Shakespearean actor. <laughs> exactly. um, but th- actors take action. Uh, what we're looking for is the active thing. What is this person doing in this situation? And Shakespeare is an astonishing writer of verbs. His verbs have so much muscle and expressivity that we as interpreters of Shakespeare learn to lean on those verbs because that's what gives the language its um, uh, zing, if you will. So uh, I don't know, you may have some of these in, in front of you, but... I do. I picked up some from your master class, and it reminded me of what rings in your ears after you leave the theater. Uh, Julius Caesar, he doth bestride. We walk tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies. And if you don't hit the verbs, what happens? I mean, it seems as if the, the, the lines just crumble. Well, you know, you get into kind of mumblecore, you know, and uh, and mumblecore is wonderful in a sort of indie movie, but in a 600-seat outdoor theater, it doesn't really carry, you know? And so when we're looking at the verbs in Shakespeare, there's there's one speech I love to look at that really demonstrates how powerful they are, and that's a speech from Julius Caesar. Uh, Cassius has decided that the power grab that Julius Caesar seems to be making, where he appears to want to be the monarch of Rome instead of the head of a republic, offends him deeply. And so Cassius decides he needs to stop Julius Caesar. And the way he's going to do that is by getting Brutus involved, because Brutus is such a respected figure in Rome. And so Cassius goes to Brutus, and he gives him this extraordinary harangue about how bad Caesar is and how the Republican values of Rome demand that we stop him. And in so doing, he tells a story about one time when he and Julius Caesar swam across the Tiber. Uh, So why don't you read us that bit about the swimming contest? Okay, and I'm going to read it as if I had not just heard your speech about verbs. Yeah, I'm do just that. going read to come it. to this. It's exactly. a scene they, he's trying to get him to swim, right? Right, yep. For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Darest thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point? Upon the word, accoutred as I was, I plunged it in and bade him follow. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinews, throwing it aside and stemming it with hearts of controversy. But ere we could arrive, the point proposed. Caesar cried, help me, Cassius, or I sink. Great. Ah, Fantastic. That's fantastic. Look at you. Look at that. You know? Come on, you're a ringer. No, okay. now make so, me not stick now, so much. Okay, now, now, now there are a lot of verbs in that, and, and I, I want to say for the grammarians listening, some of these verbs, we talk about the troubled Tiber, right? So it's an adjective. Okay, we don't care. As long as it's a word that comes from a verb, we want to look at it as having a particular kind of expressive power. Should so I get my you, pencil out? And... You could get your pencil out and uh-huh. just circle the verbs in, in that speech, and you'll hear troubled, chafing, said, darest, leap, swim, accoutred, plunged, bad, did, roared, did buffet, and then this extraordinary thing, throwing it aside, 
condemning it with hearts of controversy, right? These amazingly expressive, powerful verbs. Sounds like a play-by-play at an Olympic swim meet. And the director would go to the actor and say, now, why are you using these unbelievably muscular verbs? Well, the point is at the end, Caesar cries, help me, Cassius, or I sink. He cries, help me, Cassius, or I sink. In other words, Caesar's a wimp. And this is the guy who wants to take over Rome. So Cassius needs to dramatize this swimming contest so that he can show that the guy who's trying to seize power is a sort of sickly, uh, wimpy, failing guy. So I would say to the actor, all right, now, how much juice can you squeeze out of those verbs as you go through the narration of this swimming contest? So try it again. And there's no going over the top because it's just rehearsal. The New York Times is not coming to review you right now. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Okay, so, so I should ham. Well, I, I would say, rather than looking at it that way, why don't you see just how expressive you can make these words feel before it goes over the top? Okay, gotcha. For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Darest thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point? Upon the word, accoutred as I was, I plunged in and bade him follow. So indeed he did. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it and stemming it with hearts of controversy. But ere we could arrive, the point proposed, Caesar cried, Help me, Cassius, or I sink. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So do you hear the difference? You get a lot of momentum. Yes. And what else do you do you start to what, what do you start to feel what Cassius is feeling this this envy and this sense of scorn toward this guy? Yes, I think it carries the emotion. Right. Precisely. So yeah. what it does is it puts you, Barbara, into Cassius's brain or 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 the other way maybe puts Cassius's brain into Barbara's head and so not only are you portraying this person you are actually thinking this person's thoughts right in front of me so really i think now we've arrived at one of the my favorite of all your techniques and it's something that we do in radio all the time to sound more like we're talking to an actual living breathing human being when we read uh, copy and you have act- actors do this by reading just one line at a time and you interject questions before they read the next line explain how you develop that what why you do that Well, the majority of Shakespeare's verse is written in a form called uh, iambic pentameter, blank verse. Iambic pentameter, as I'm sure your listeners know, is a fancy way of saying it's got 10 syllables. Uh, Five of them are stressed and five of them are unstressed in an alternating pattern. So now is the winter of our discontent. To be or not to be, that is the question. The quality of mercy is not strained. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. We don't say it that way. We say it in the way that a native speaker of English would. But we analyze the language according to what the meter tells us it should do. And if you go to a rehearsal room of a professional Shakespeare production, you'll see people banging on a table to try and figure out to dump, to dump, to dump. Where is the language telling me the stress falls? Now, here's the key point. Shakespeare knew that he was doing this. And what that means is that he knew where each line begins and where each line ends. And one of the most powerful techniques in thinking Shakespeare is to discover that what's happening at the end of each line is an opportunity for thought. 
the character has a microsecond to figure out what's going to come next. And that moment of what comes next, that's the cue to living thought. And so in the rehearsal room, I will uh, sometimes, frankly, torture the actors by screaming out at the end of a line, what, 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 what do you mean? What well, comes sure next? They love what comes that. next? They hate it. <laughs> they hate it. And there's a there's a simpler way to do it that is less painful. Um, and uh, again, it involves a trip to Staples. Go get yourself a piece of paper and cover the text and read only one line at a time. And what you will discover is Shakespeare is laying out the architecture of thought one verse line at a time. If you watch a great actor who really knows how this works, you will not know that that's what's happening. It will sound like natural speech. I mean, just listen to me talk now. There are strange breaks. There are moments where I stop a second and figure out what's next. There are moments where I breathe. That's all that we're trying to recognize is that it's got a naturalistic kind of um, feeling to it because we're watching a person think up their language as they go. Well, let's try it with the passage that you use in, in your master class. It's from Merchant of Venice. It's, the, uh, it's Portia as Balthazar, and it's the quality of mercy speech. Great. So would you like me, how about you say a line, okay. and I will ask you what comes next at the end of that line. The quality of mercy is not strained. What is it? It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. Where? Upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. What do you mean? It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. I don't get it. Well, tis mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes. What? The throned monarch, better than his crown. What else? His scepter shows the force of temporal power. What? The attribute to awe and majesty. What about it? Well, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. What else? But mercy is above this sceptered sway. What do you mean? It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. What do you mean? It is an attribute to God himself. What about it? And earthly power doth then show likest gods. When? When mercy seasons justice. Now, what that exercise does, Barbara, is it forces you to think Portia's thoughts one line at a time. So that by the time you get to opening night, you're saying, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. That is really beautiful. I feel two things when you're doing this. And one is that it forces you to be more spontaneous obviously, because you're talking to someone. Right. But it seems to also bring out in, as you're thinking about it, as if you're having a conversation really with yourself, which is what we do when we make speeches. I we couldn't really, agree more. I right? couldn't agree you, more, right? You, you and, feel the duality of the, and the and, thought within, and, within the passage. And, you know, look, I'm not a terribly good actor, and uh, all I know is I can use this technique to simulate spontaneity. I had a fantastic time doing this with you, and I can see how it would be invaluable for actors in your master class. But what made you think 
oh, let's do this in front of an audience. Well, you know, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, one of the most mysterious things to me of all, and I do this thing a couple of times a year at the Old Globe. So here it is, a Saturday morning at 11 a.m. in San Diego, you know, the most beautiful, sunny place in the world. And people come in to sit in a dark room to listen to somebody talk about Shakespeare for 90 minutes. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Now, I think that um, people really want to... To, to love Shakespeare. People understand instinctively that there's something beautiful there, and it can feel remote. So they want ways to connect. I, I think also it's so fascinating to see someone, a master of their craft at work. I, I don't know. It's like watching Rafael Nadal showing you how he does a backswing or, or Beyonce <laughs> explaining how the lemonade video was made. You know, pulling well, back the curtain is irresistible. Uh, I, I think that's right. I, I mean, you know, I would be the last person ever to put myself in the vaunted company of Rafael Nadal or Beyonce, God knows. But uh, <laughs> I have been doing this for 30 years, you know, and so I've learned a little bit about how the material works. And, and I agree. It's why we like watching cooking shows, um, to watch somebody put together a beautiful, exquisite meal step by step is, is a very, very special reward. There's this deep sense of joy that this thing that has uh, felt so distant and, and, and that we all know has value, but there's this, this real sense of joy that, that we can own it and connect to it ourselves. And, and, and you know, uh, Barbara, in the final analysis, that's the impulse behind the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's the impulse behind the Old Globe. It's the impulse behind all these institutions that deliver Shakespeare to the public in various different ways, which is that the treasures of the culture are for everybody. So it's incumbent upon those of us who are the stewards of these institutions to again and again look for creative and fun and interesting and engaging ways to share this art with the widest possible public. Well, Barry Edelstein, it's such a pleasure, and gracious is the word. You couldn't have been more gracious uh, working with me in your in your abbreviated master class. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Barbara. And you know what? We'll be casting next summer Shakespeare Festival pretty soon, so I hope you'll send your headshot and resume. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's already on the way. Barry Edelstein is the Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director at the Old Globe in San Diego, California. The second edition of his book, Thinking Shakespeare, a how-to guide for student actors, directors, and anyone else who wants to feel more comfortable with the Bard, will be published by Theater Communications Group in the spring of 2018. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Speak the Speech, I Pray You, As I Pronounced It, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Justin Waldman, Associate Artistic Director at the Old Globe, and from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Markwart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Kurt Conan at KPBS in San Diego. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us to get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. <laughs>